Heavenly Father, we take some time to just consider who you are. And also, Father, to recognize the only reason we can come into your presence is because of the sacrifice and the blood that was actually shed for us so that it says in Hebrews, we have the freedom to come boldly into your presence, but it's because of Christ and what he's done. On our own, on our own, we have no chance. So, Father, a couple things. First of all, forgive us for really our small picture of you in our mind. Forgive us, Father, when we take you for granted. Forgive us, Father, for not including you in our conversations, thoughts, and decisions. Secondly, Father, enlarge our vision. Help us to see who you are today and help us to understand your word and how you actually lived in some pretty precarious, dangerous, strange times. And so, Lord, in order for that to happen, I need your Holy Spirit to help me to preach with clarity and strength, but also to help the listener to be enlightened and even pay attention. We need you. And so, Father, we love you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Could you open up to the book of 1 Samuel? It's in the Old Testament. We're going to look at chapter 4 through 7 today. 1 Samuel, chapter 4 through 7. Before we go there, have you ever just considered a box? A box is a box is a box. No, nothing specifically important about a box. A box contains things. Sometimes a box contains some good things, like some Krispy Kreme donuts. But once you eat the Krispy Kreme donuts, a box turns into a box, turns into a box. No big deal. But what about a box like this? What about a box? about this size, shaped like this. Sometimes a box isn't just a box. I know a guy who lost a box like this, and he almost lost his mind. Because it's not just the box itself, it's what the box contains. Could be a engagement ring, wedding ring. So a box, to a degree, represents something more important. But sometimes, a box is even more important. And I would say more dangerous. I have one more box up here. And as I disclose this box, I have some music to go along with it. Are you ready? Dun-da-dun-dun, dun-da-dun, dun-da-dun-dun, dun-da-dun-dun-dun. Did you guys do your homework and watch? Very good. Excellent. This is known as the Ark of the Covenant. Well, a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, Bertha White had mocked this replica, laughing all service. I was quite offended, so don't laugh at this wonderful box. But this box, this box is really important to God's people in the Old Testament. This box actually is a representation of the glory of God. In fact, there's nothing more important than the glory of God. Nothing. And we're going to learn all about that today. So if you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to begin the sermon reading the first 11 verses. And the title of this, it's not just a box. 1 Samuel 4 verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. The Philistines 
the best way to put it, it's, it's their main adversary. They, they have set up cities and lands and towns in the promised land, and they're not leaving. And so they are Israel's prime enemy. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come along among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, we learned last week they are called worthless men, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, Hey! Yes! It's here! That's, that's what it means. So that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And then one of the guys in the Philistines said, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So what's, what's up with this ark? It doesn't seem like it was too important, because it sure didn't seem to win a battle. Even Eli considers it important. Look at verse 12 and 13. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. So he just came from the battle. He's all dirty. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road and watching. For his heart trembled, probably for his sons, right? No, for the ark of God and that it was captured. So Eli the priest, he was more worried about the ark than he was his sons. What's so special about the ark? I mean, it didn't even help them. 30,000 were slaughtered. How could this be that important? I mean, so much for God's glory, right? No big, no big help. Didn't do anything. We need to backtrack a little bit. I need to kind of give you an explanation of what the ark is, what God intended for the ark, and why it didn't work. Why they were slaughtered. It's really important. And to do that, I'm first going to describe the ark for you. It was it's known as 2.5 cubic meters or cubic cubits, cubits long, 1.5 cubits wide, 
1.5 cubits tall. There was some feet they put on it, but I'm not that skilled at architecture, so you can see it's a stupid little box. Anyhow, I shouldn't say that. God will strike me dead. I'm sorry. It's just a box. And by the way, Ken said, Ken Vanderwest didn't look the whole time because he knows you're not allowed to look on the ark. You can look at this. It's okay. Inside the ark are some items. And these items are meant to characterize God. Inside the item are three items. The first item are the tablets of stone. The tablets of stone represent the covenant that was made with God. So God said, will you do everything I tell you? They said, yes, we'll do everything we tell you. You tell us to do. And so the reason this is called the Ark of the Covenant is because of these, the covenant, the law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. What the Ten Commandments represent, these represent his holiness and his justice. God is just. He treats everybody fair under the law. There's nobody special. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Everybody is treated the same. But it represents his holiness. It represents his justice. So another item in here is a, a container, golden container, of manna. Manna is the bread that came from heaven. Israel is hungry and they're whining, they're complaining. They said, what did you bring us out here to die? And so the next morning God said, I'll provide for you. So when they woke up, all scattered outside of their tents was white cakes that tasted like honey. And Moses said, take a couple of those, put them in a jar, so they will be remembered forever in the nation Israel. That jar represents the grace in the provision of God. That when we are in need, God will answer our needs. He's good. And there's one more item in here. There was a big discussion going on in Israel. And this discussion was, who is going to go before God on behalf of people? Who's going to be the priest? Because this would be inside the temple. I'll explain that in a second. And Moses said, well, God chose Aaron, my brother. And the people didn't like that because they thought Moses, oh, yeah, everything goes your way. So Moses said, all right, bring 12 staffs, 12 from each tribe of Israel, and we'll put it before the ark. We'll leave the tent. God's glory will come down. It will go back up. I'll go in the tent and see which staff God blessed. And so he came out, and Aaron's staff, had blossoms on it. Literally live blossoms came out of a dead stick. This represents God's power to bring death back to life. It's interesting, a priest goes before God on behalf of a sinful people, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. A priest goes to God, offers a sacrifice, God forgives their sins and gives them new life. This staff, which is dead, sprouted. So when you look at these three things, they represent holiness and justice, grace and provision, power and resurrection. They are the glory of God. It's who he is. 
But the greatest thing of all is when you put this back on, this right here, our cherubs, no laughing over there. Are you laughing? This is the tent. This is the Ark of the Covenant. You might be struck dead. That's my son laughing. I'll put it back up. Actually, my daughter laughed at the staff, said, Dad, why is it broken? I said, because this is the real staff from Aaron. It's been around a long time, and people mess with it. Anyhow, so what they would do, once a year, they would slaughter a goat. And here's the temple. This is what happens. The temple is this big square. To go up there, I need to walk up, and then for a priest, they had this bird bath. They called a laver. You'd wash. You go past there. Then you offer incense. And then there would be a veil. You go through this veil. There would be showbread on this side. There'd be candlestick on this side. And then you go through a final veil. And this is called the Holy of Holies. And the priest would bring this jar of blood from the goat. And he would sprinkle it on this. So God would cover the sins of the people. And you know what this is called? The mercy seat. It's falling again. Geo, you're doing that with telekinesis. This is called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, God, look at what it says in Exodus, will meet you here. So we have law, justice, resurrection, grace, and mercy. This is the glory of God. It's to, it's to display in a, in a visual form, his beauty, his internal beauty. So it's really important. But if you read verse 22 of 1 Samuel 4, not only did Eli die, not only did his two sons die, one of his sons had a wife who was pregnant. She died. And right before she died, in verse 21, she named her child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. So what she's saying is God's glory has been, it's been lost. How can God let this happen? Why did God let this happen? And it's very simple. It's really simple. And this is something we can never forget. And I want to make this rather simple because this is so important. God will not be used for other people's glory. God won't be used. Isaiah 48.11 actually says, For my sake I do things, not for yours, for my sake. In 1 Samuel 4.3, 4,000 men died. Israel blamed the defeat on God. Look at 1 Samuel 4.3. Look at what they say. Verse 3, and when the troops came to camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us? It's his fault. He failed. He let them down. Have you ever felt like God let you down and you blamed him for that? He failed me. He didn't help me. And then what happens in our heart, if we really believe God let us down, like Israel believed, we start actually taking care of life ourselves in our own way. It's really funny. I, as I was sitting back there worshiping, I heard the rain came down, and I'm kind of a um, radar freak. 
And I'm like, oh, man, I hope it doesn't keep rain, raining during my, my sermon because it will bother people. And so I had to go on the radar to see. The, why? What is that going to do? What is, what is looking at the radar going to do? It's still going to rain. It says if I can control it because I looked at the stinking radar. It's exactly what Israel does. They're like, God let us up, so we are going to go into the temple, take the ark for ourselves. We're going to go to Shiloh. We're going to get those uh, worthless men of Eli's sons, and we're going to have them bring the ark to camp, and we're going to take over. So instead of inquiring of God, they take matters in their own hands. Instead of waiting and trusting, they take over. So they took the ark, believing it would be a channel for God's power. Because they're doing it for their sake. And as we're going to see, you don't do this. You don't, you don't take things that are God's without his permission. You don't do it. But they were desperate. And in their desperation, they didn't listen. It's kind of like the great American model, don't just sit there, do something, so they did something. And a man handled the ark. You could say, man, but that took initiative. They got her done. Yeah, but 30,000 men died. I want to show you something in verse uh, 5. Before they even went to battle, when the men took the ark, when they did it on their own, they didn't inquire of the Lord. They just took the ark. And verse 5 says, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so the earth resounded. I just had a quick thought. Just because people are excited doesn't mean they're right. This has become a problem in Christianity. We often mistake large crowds, hype, Excitement, big concerts, mega churches with guys with golden rings. We mistake that as a sign that God's blessing is there, and that isn't always the case. It's easy to hype things up. Israel thought they could use God's power without his consent for their personal success. They didn't want to bring glory to God, they just wanted to win for their own pride. We kind of view God like a genie and a butler. A genie is somebody you rub the lamp, say the right words, and he comes out. There, if I pray the right thing, if I pray things positively, if I pray things with enough faith, God will give me what I want, like a genie. That's why I pray, because I need things from God right now. I don't necessarily pray for his glory, I pray for mine. And then a butler, a butler serve me. Do what I want right now. Did you know God's number one goal for you is not success. God really doesn't care if you're rich and happy. Do you know what God's number one goal for you is? To know him and the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Do you know why he wants you to know Jesus Christ? Because in Jesus is wrapped up the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being. In Christ is all his glory. That is the most important thing, is to know him. Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to show you something. I want you to go to Exodus 25 for a second. 
I'm going to put this back up. Out of respect, Gio, out of respect. I'll keep that there. But look at Exodus 25. Now, this is when God tells you how to put together the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. It's a tent. That was over top this article and all these other articles. And he says in verse 8 and 9, very important in Exodus 25, and let them make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. So God wanted a tent so he could be among his people. That's what he wanted. Then he says in verse 9, do it as exactly as I show you. Exactly. Concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, which means follow my words to a T. Because when it comes to his glory and holiness, he does not mess around. When it comes to his person, he doesn't mess around. And so later on, before, before a priest even enters this veil, he has to wash his whole body. He washes his whole body, puts on new garments, and then goes through the veil to offer incense and then sacrifice. It says, if you do not wash, if you do not wash, expel this person from the community forever. It says, send them out. So if a priest didn't wash, he doesn't get to go. He doesn't only not to get to go in, he's gone. Send him in the wilderness. Go to Numbers chapter 4. Watch this. Numbers chapter 4. In verse 5. When the camp is to set out, because this camp was mobile, which meant this tent could be picked up, could be put on carts, and then they could go to the next city and then reset it up. But they had very specific ways there to do this. Verse 5 says, When the camp is set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So this veil, before they move out, they take this veil and they are to cover it completely so nobody sees it. Watch verse 15. Verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings, which includes the ark, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. Wait a minute. So they're not allowed to touch? No, they touch it, you die. Now look at verse 20. Verse 20. And start in the middle of 19. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burdens, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. So they can't even look at it for a moment because God's glory is so important. You can't even look at it. You can't touch it. Keep it covered or you'll die. And so what he did, according to go hit the slide, According to Numbers 131, he assigned specific tribes, different priests, to different items. Some were assigned to the lamp, some were assigned to the ark, some were assigned to the showbread. 
and they were to guard them. Why does it use the word guard? Because if you get near it, you'll probably die. And then there's a little story in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus with the sons of Aaron himself, Moses' brother, so Moses' nephews, offered a strange fire, which meant an improper fire. They lit the wrong incense. They put the wrong kind of incense, and it said a fire from heaven consumed them. So you know what? They should have been warned about stealing the ark out of Shiloh and touching it. And look, they should have known. They should have known. 30,000 people died. When you look at that, that is like a major civil war battle. That's close to the Gettysburg battle. Because one side is 51,000 in Gettysburg, but this is just one side. Israel lost 30,000. Here's a question. Based on what we've just learned, who is more dangerous? The nations of the world or God? I think we are so scared by the opinions of man that we will twist around God's word and say, ah, he really didn't mean that because we don't want people to be mad at us. We want to be popular. But whom shall we fear? Watch this next part. Go to 1 Samuel 5. The question is, whom shall we fear? 1 Samuel chapter 5. And as I read this, I'm going to show you kind of on the map what's happening. So we start up there in Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tent was. Shiloh is where they got the ark, and then they went over to Ebenezer to fight the Philistines. That's where they lost 30,000 men. At that moment, up there in Ebenezer, and the ark is captured, and it, now the Philistines think they won a great trophy. They won a great prize. It's going to be a grand day. Look at verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So Ashdod is all the way down the coast, really close to the ocean. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon is a god. He's actually a god of the sea. He looks like a fish. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, that's where we get Dagon at. Dagon, I'm kidding. I'm, some of you are sleeping. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So he's prostrate before the ark. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place. Poor old Dagon. But when they rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground again before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So start getting tumors, like big bumps and scabs and boils and plagues. Verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around the Gath. So they brought it down there to Gath. They didn't want it in Ashdod anymore. 
So they brought the Ark to Gath, but after they brought it there, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a great panic, more tumors on young and old. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. Ekron's a little while north of there. But then the Ark of God came to Ekron. The people of Ekron cried out, They brought around to us the Ark of God of Israel to kill us. They sent their four gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, send away the ark, and let it return to its own place, for there was deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry went up to heaven. So the people think they are going to fight on their own. They grab the ark. They lose 30,000 men. The ark gets captured. Terrible day, but then God fights for himself. And he starts whipping up on the Philistines all by himself. So the moral of this story, God will defend his glory. He does, doesn't need you to. God will defend his glory. He'll defend it against two people. He'll defend it against those who are outside his covenant. That is why I wonder why we are so embarrassed about stating we're Christians in the public square. God can handle himself. Why are we so embarrassed? Why, why do we feel we are so weak? Is God on our side or not? Yeah, but the world doesn't, doesn't make sense to them. They don't think, we're, don't think we're kind. They think we're arrogant. You know why we're, we're not arrogant? We just believe in God and we believe his word is true. Would it be arrogant to tell the people in Ashdod that, you know what, if you have the ark, you're going to get boils and tumors. Stay away from the ark. Oh, you're just, you just think your God's better. Yeah, he is. He is. He just is. We don't say that anymore. And the second thing, God will defend his glory against people inside his covenant. Look at 1 Samuel 6. This might seem really cruel, so... They don't want that ark anymore, so they put this on a wagon. They put the ark in a wagon, and they hook it up to two cows, and they send it back to Israel. So these cows are coming back home with the ark. And verse 13 says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh, which are Jews, Israel, God's people, they were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes, and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Yes, it's back. We got the ark back. They looked at it, and they rejoiced. Do you remember what we read earlier? Are you allowed to look at it? But they were excited. Can't they look at it? Verse 19, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Wait a minute. They didn't do anything wrong. All they're doing is they're working in the fields, and they're excited, and God kills them, 70 of them. Look what it says in verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Why would God be so harsh? Simple. Here it is. It's very simple. It's really not complicated. He means what he says. He means what he says. 
yeah, but all we did is look at it because we're ha- he means what he says. He, he just means what he says. We just need to get that through our mind. He means what he says. Uh, you can look at it like this. I was having a conversation with someone recently about losing someone that they love to death. It happens. People die all the time. A lot. And there's always somebody that honestly says it's not fair. Why did God let that person die? I love them. Either they were young or just if God, he wouldn't wouldn't have let it happen. Why doesn't he stop death? It's simple. It's really simple. I know this might sound cruel, but it's very simple. He means what he says. If you sin, you die. Adam, don't eat it. You'll die. Why don't we believe him? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. I just want to read this. He said this. I'm not going to read 11. You can read 11. Often, a lot of times, we jump right to 11 to take the sting out of 9 and 10. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And don't automatically jump to 11 because 11 only is beautiful if you really believe 9 and 10. Sometimes we steal the beauty from something because we want to whitewash the other things. And if you whitewash, then the other thing doesn't mean anything. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Basically, these people aren't going to go to heaven. Well, who? Well, don't be deceived which means don't let people lie to you. These people aren't going to make it. Who? Well, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, wait a minute. Really? Does he really mean that? Because that's an awful lot of people I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's why verse 11 is so beautiful. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. But if you don't think it's that bad, you won't, you won't see how important it is to be washed and sanctified. If you aren't washed and sanctified, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you've ever done any of these things. Why? Because he means what he says. And then the third point of this story is It's the whole story of 1 Samuel and Kings. God will honor those who honor him. We read that last week, but I'm going to keep reminding you. If I can drub this single idea through your mind in the next three months, that God will honor those who honor him. When you're in the middle of something and you want to sin, you will say to yourself, yeah, but God will honor those who honor him. I'm I'm not going to sin. That's the only thing I can think of that will stop some people from sinning to say, you know what, I want to do this. But it's not honoring. If I don't do it, I'm honoring him, hoping he's going to honor me because he promised it. To me, that's one of the greatest ways to avoid sin, to really believe he will honor you. If you honor him, Samuel honored him. Look at 1 Samuel 7, 3 to 6. Go back to Samuel, 1 Samuel 7, 3 to 6. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, 
Then put away the foreign gods. And he asked Terath from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals, and he asked Terath, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day. And they said, We have sinned against the Lord. They acknowledge that what they did was sin. What's very interesting, the Philistines also recognized they sinned because when they sent back the ark on a wagon, they put five golden tumors on the wagon and five golden mice as a sacrifice or a guilt offering back to the God of Israel. And they used the word guilt. We don't use that word anymore, guilt. But it's still true. I, I'll put it to you like this. I was talking with Jared this week, and we were working through some ordination questions. And Jared, he wrote a, a paper that he's going to present on Thursday, and he's done a great job on that. We've been going, me, Derek, and Ken have been going through questions with him. And on, on Thursday, he came to my office and said, are there any big questions, you know, that they love to ask? I said, there is one. You have to know the answer to this. It's the question of theodicy. Theodicy is the problem of evil. If God is a good God, why would he allow evil? And the question is, if God is good, he won't allow evil. Therefore, if evil exists, God must not be good, right? Or if God is good and all-powerful and there's evil, then he must not be all-powerful because there's evil. It's called the question of theodicy. I said, Jared, you have to be able to answer that. So he came in the next day. He goes, Chris, I found this video by this pastor named Vodi Bochum. You've got to see it. And it was really interesting. He's a big African-American pastor, and he said, you know, a lot of college students come to my church, and they, after they go to one-year philosophy, they'll come up to me and they'll say, why, if God is good, why would he allow evil? And Vodi says, oh, you've been to philosophy class, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, answer that for me. And he said, well, I'm not going to answer it because the question's wrong. He said, well, you can't tell me my question's wrong. Yes, I can. The question is wrong. Well, what's the question? Here's the question. Why am I allowed to sit and think sinful thoughts and not be put to death because God is holy? Why aren't I consumed every moment of my life by his wrath? That's the question. That's the question. If, if we're honest, guilt is real. And God will honor those who repent. It's one more thing we have to be honest about, too, is when we read this and we hear God is striking people dead for looking upon an ark, it seems kind of archaic. Like, where is the ark? Why isn't the ark around? Oh, because God probably changed his mind. He was too harsh. Where is the ark, by the way? There's three... There's three suggestions. I'll give you three suggestions where the ark is. The first suggestion is by this uh, couple writers believe that when Solomon was alive, Queen of Sheba came to visit him. You can read about it. And some people believe he allowed the Queen of Sheba to take some treasures, and one of the treasures he gave to her was the ark. Some people believe the ark is in Ethiopia. 
In fact, there is a church in Ethiopia. It is named St. Mary of Zion. And it's guarded day and night by holy monks of a sanctified order. And they don't let anybody to see it. The only problem with this is about 10 years ago, maybe four years ago, there was roof of St. Mary's was leaking. And they had to repair the whole thing. And they were going to move to another church. And while they were moving, there were some people that wanted to see the ark, and they hid in the bushes. And they saw them move everything out, and there was no ark. And they caught them. Aha, you lied. And the holy monk said something. Well, God made it disappear for a while, and now it reappeared. And you, ah, no, scratch that off. That's a bad story. So where could the ark be? There's another story. Second story is this. In 2 Chronicles 36, Solomon's temple was completely destroyed. And they took all the gold. And when, to get the gold, they had to destroy the ark. And they took the gold off the ark and... Some people are like, no, no, no. Before that happened, some priest hid the ark underneath Jerusalem in a hidden cave somewhere in Jerusalem. About 20 years ago said, this guy, he's, he was going around the country, United States, go, I found the hidden cave. Do you want to know where the hidden cave is? It's on a hill called Golgotha. And it's hidden there by stones. It's inside. And when I went to look at it, there was a crack on the top of the hill of Golgotha that happened to be where Jesus was. He was crucified. And you know that that blood went down the cross, down the crack, and dripped on the Ark of the Testimony. And that's where it is. That's why the priests won't let you in there. Well, there's really no cave under Golgotha because it's a stone mountain. So I'll scratch that. That's just one of those crazy fabrications. People are like, no, that's not true. There's a third story, though. The Nazis still have it. They still have it. Actually, they, Hitler had it, when it in his bunker when the Russians came in. and That's a bunch of baloney, too. Don't buy that. So that homework, I just wanted to show you that's a lie. It's in the government storage houses, hidden away. Burning Nazi symbols, because it hates the Nazis. That's a, that's a lie, too, by the way. I want to show you the answer. Go to Jeremiah. This is very interesting. Jeremiah chapter 3, 16 and 17. Hear that rain? Man, looking at the radar didn't stop it. So it's crazy. Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17. So Jeremiah is talking to Israel in about the future. And he says in verse 16, And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the Lord or the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be remade again. It shall not come to mind, be remembered, or even missed. It shall not be made again. Why not? Why not? Because of Romans 3.25. Listen to what Romans 3.25 says. Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that phrase means mercy seat. It's the same word in the Greek for mercy seat. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a mercy seat to be received by faith. That means we don't need this anymore. We don't need this. Do you know when Jesus died, it said the veils were ripped. So this veil was ripped. This veil was ripped. Hebrews says now we have access by faith in the presence of God because the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ canceled all of our sins. He is our mercy seat. He is the one who has not just covered our sin, but paid for it. He is, Jesus once said in Luke 24, 44, he said, all the Old Testament, everything, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are about me. How can this be about Jesus? Well, Jesus is, he, he's the law, he's grace, he's mercy, he's resurrection. Jesus is everything. And you know what Hebrews says about him in chapter 1? He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He is the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this age is trying to blind us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's everything. He is everything. Why, why won't it be remade? Because Jesus himself is the mercy seat. You want to hear one more interesting thing? When, in the, when Jesus rose from the dead and the ladies went into the tomb and where Jesus was lying in the tomb, who did they see sitting at the tomb? Two angels were sitting where Jesus was laid and he was no more. He's the mercy seat. Question is, is he covering your sin, your guilt, because if he's not, he is still going to maintain his glory. And sometimes he maintains it by wrath. If you are saved, if you've accepted Jesus' death and resurrection, you believe in it, he's yours, you are covered by him. If you are not, you can't look upon God just like you can't look upon the ark without his permission. Let's pray.